Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, October 13th. That's right, Friday the 13th, 2017. Light episode today. Hopefully we can get back on a regular schedule before too long. And oh yeah, I'm going to be out of town next week. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to, you know, open up the Bible. (laughs) You've heard of these things. You you, you can actually, you know, there's apps you can buy with the Bible on it. You you can actually go with the old paper analog version. But we actually open up the Bible to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books supposedly we need to be buying and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Or again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, teaching, yeah, that's what doctrine is, doesn't even remotely come close to conveying (laughs) what God's Word says, what the Holy Spirit has revealed in Scripture, what Christians have historically believed, taught, confessed, done, things like that. Yeah, far from it. There's a whole lot of ear-scratching going on out there. Uh, Case in point, many, 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 many people who call themselves Christians are completely oblivious to the absolute decimation to our being that sin has wrought upon us, the doctrine of original sin, and the fact that we are born by nature objects of God's wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, at war with God, and slaves to sin. This is the picture that Scripture teaches. And so for today's episode, we're going to uh, uh, once again uh, tap the shoulders of the uh, late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, listen to a sermon that he delivered on 1 Peter chapter 1, I think verses 18, 19, 20, uh, dealing with man being a slave to sin. It'll be a, you know, it, he'll do a fine exegetical work. Now, a little bit of uh, house cleaning before we uh, get into today's uh, light episode. Uh, house cleaning item numero uno 
is that um, <laughs> I will be out of town next week. Next week I am traveling to San Diego where I plan on having a double-double animal style. Just been a while since I've done that. But uh, I am speaking at the, uh, the, Here, the Here We Still Stand conference put on by the 15 Legacy uh, Project and uh, looking forward to just a wee bit of downtime, which I actually am in desperate need of considering the uh, complexities of my life since the summer. So uh, next week, no new episodes next week. I will be back on the 23rd. And the, 20, uh, the, the week of the 23rd will be a normal week. The following week, uh, Reformation, uh, 500th uh, anniversary of the Reformation. I'll be out of town again for a few days. Uh, I won't take the entire week off, but I do have a speaking engagement for the American Association of Lutheran Churches for their uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation event in uh, the Twin Cities. So, uh, you know, I... Hopefully we'll be able to grab a copy of the, the uh, audio of what I did there so we can throw that up as uh, as a light episode to kind of at least kind of fill the week out. So have a little bit of traveling ahead of me. Uh, so want to give you a heads up regarding that. Now, now that you know that, let's uh, get to today's episode. Uh, here is the late Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on First Peter chapter 1. Uh, the message is titled, Man, a Slave to Sin. Here we go. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the first epistle of Peter, in the first chapter, verses 18, 19, and 20. Verses 18, 19, and 20, in the first chapter of the first epistle of Peter. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him to believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. It's almost impossible to stop reading the moment you start reading these great and moving and glorious words which are here written for us by the apostles. You see, it's all one great theme. And what we've been doing now for a number of Sunday evenings is to look at different aspects of this theme. No men can preach the whole of the gospel in one sermon. I know there are some foolish people who think that men can, but they can't, of course. It's too vast, it's too glorious, as we've seen. This is the great plan of redemption, something that calls upon us to gird up the lines of our mind if we are really going to look into it and examine it and understand something of it. Why this is such a great theme that we are told, you remember in that twelfth verse, that the angels in heaven are stooping down, straining their necks, looking at it, looking into it. No, no, we can only touch upon aspects of it from Sunday to Sunday like this, but it's all a part of the great whole. And every part of it always reminds us, in a sense, of the whole. So as we've been proceeding, we have been seeing how these different parts do indeed inevitably lead to the next part, and thus together they make up this glorious unity. Well, we've just been singing 
together about singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. We've been saying that uh, we enjoy doing that in this life. We've been looking forward to the day when we shall do it without end in glory. Ah, yes, but you know, before you can sing that song truly, you can sing the tune, but uh, we've been singing words as well. Before we can really mean what we sing, before we know exactly what we're doing, there are certain things that we've got to understand. You notice how Peter puts it here, knowing, he says, because you know for as much as ye know. Now, this is what makes this consideration of this section of Scripture not only interesting and enjoyable, but makes it very serious. At one and the same time, the apostle here is giving us a display of the gospel. It's a great enunciation of the gospel in its various parts, as I say. Yes, but it's also another thing. It is something that tests us as we listen to it. All along, every definition of it becomes a test. Is that position? Here is Peter writing to ordinary Christians. This isn't a circular letter to apostles, you know. This isn't a circular letter to professors of theology or doctors of the church. He's writing to people whom he addresses as strangers scattered abroad throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, etc. He doesn't know them, never met them. Very ordinary people, many of them slaves. But you see, he is writing to them about this great and this wonderful salvation, and this is what he says, for as much as you know, you know it, says Peter. I know that you know it. Why? Well, you can't be a Christian if you don't know it. That's what he's saying. And that is why I'm saying that as we consider these things positively, we are coming under examination. You know. Well, do we know? Are we aware of these things? Do we believe them? Is this our position? Is this our attitude? For instance, can I say quite honestly this evening that I am looking forward to singing that song of Moses and the Lamb in glory? Can I say that honestly? That's what a Christian says. That's a definition of a Christian. A Christian is a man who's looking forward to that. He sings the song here, but he is looking to the day when he shall sing it without end in glory. Well, now then, you see, we've been looking at this like this. We have seen that uh, this uh, gospel tells us uh, something about our state and condition by nature, the sort of life we live our vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers. We've seen that. We have also seen that our whole position is a very precarious one. Because we are face to face with a God who judgeth every man according to his works. And without any respect of persons. Rank and position don't count with God. It's works, records, books. It's all there, and every man's going to be judged according to his works. We're only sojourners. We're only travelers and pilgrims in this world, and we're going on to that. We have also seen that our greatest need of all in this world is the need of knowing God, that we may receive the blessings that he alone can give us. 
Well, now then, here arises the great question. How can we get into that position where we know God as our Father and begin to receive some of the blessings that we were looking at last Sunday night? Who have God's peace in a world full of sound of war and trouble and confusion. Who have a joy that the world can neither give nor ever take away. To be so blessed of God that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know both how to be abased and how to abound. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, that's the need. Oh, how can one get there? How can one get to this knowledge of God as Father? And know that you're his child and that you can go into his presence with confidence and assurance, even with a kind of boldness. How is that possible? Well, we are looking tonight at the answer to that. For here we are told that there is only one way whereby that is possible. For as much as you know that you were redeemed, not with silver and gold, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now all we have to do tonight is to look at the terms that are used by the apostle. How can I get to that knowledge of God? How can I know that God is my father and that I am his child? There's only one way. You need, says the apostle, to be redeemed. For as much as you know that you were redeemed. Before you were redeemed, you were not in that position. You have been redeemed. You are therefore in the... You call upon the Father now because you have been redeemed. If you hadn't been redeemed, you couldn't do it. Therefore, I say, the first thing we are told about men, as he is by nature in this world, is that he needs to be redeemed. What does that mean? Well, it means, of course, that we need to be delivered. The first thing it means, that's the most elemental thing in the content of this great word that is translated here, redeemed. It means we need to be delivered. Now, we might stay with it, we mustn't this evening, but at any rate, it reminds us of this, doesn't it? That our fundamental need as men and women born into this world in sin is not to be helped nor to be encouraged. It is to be delivered. You see, it is because so many have never understood that they need first and foremost to be set free, to be delivered from a bondage, that they've never understood the meaning of a communion service. Let's look at it like that. What's the point of this communion service? Why do we thus, the third Sunday night in every month, meet at this table and break bread and eat it and pour out wine and drink it. Why do we do this? And every first Sunday morning in the month, what's it all about? There are so many people who say, oh, well, I don't know. It's a custom. It's a tradition. It never means anything to me. I suppose I ought to feel certain things, but I don't. They don't understand what it's all about, and it's meaningless. And you know, the real cause of that in the last analysis is that they don't know the truth about themselves. They are not clear about their position, about their condition. They've never realized that they need first and foremost to be redeemed. 
We don't merely need teaching. We don't merely need to be given a little help to live a better life. No, no, our position's much too desperate for that. We don't, I say, need just to be encouraged to make a final effort and all will be well. No, according to the Bible, we're in such a position of slavery that that's of no value to us at all. We are helpless, we can do nothing. It's no use exhorting us. The power that's holding us down is too strong for that. We can't break loose. Teaching alone avails us nothing. The world surely ought to have understood that by now. Why have all your moral ethical systems and all your philosophical systems led to nothing? Why have we got all these intense moral problems today? They're just proving that exhortation is insufficient. Education and imparting knowledge is not enough. Why? Well, because man's a slave. He needs to be set free. He doesn't merely mean need good advice. He doesn't merely need encouragement. He doesn't merely need an example to follow and to imitate. I'll go further. Even forgiveness isn't enough. We need something even more than forgiveness. We need forgiveness, but we need more. We need to be set free. We need to be delivered, redeemed. At the very center of this word is this notion of setting free. Well, now then, in what respects are we slaves? The Bible has abundant teaching about this. And my dear friend, you'll never understand the death of the Son of God and what happened on Calvary's hill until you realize the truth about this slavery. Man, as he's born into this world, is born in a condition of slavery. The Old Testament and the New teach it alike. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. That's the position. We are not born neutral. Still less are we born perfect. There never has been a Peter Pan. We are all born slaves. Slaves of what? Slaves of sin. And the life that is being lived by every man who is not a Christian is a life of slavery to sin. The position is not merely that men do certain things that are wrong. The terrible thing is that their whole condition and position is one of slavery. Now that is the teaching of the Bible everywhere. Let me give you some of these indications of it in the biblical teaching. In other words, let me put it like this. According to the Bible, what is true of every one of us by nature is that we are being dominated by a power and a force that is within us which is called sin. And this power is greater than our power. It's greater than ourselves. I know that this isn't popular today. It isn't popular because people are not honest with themselves. Why are we all conscious of failure? Why do we all metaphorically kick ourselves? Why do we ever suffer from remorse? Well, it just means that we realize at times something of this slavery. The trouble is not that a man just now and again, I say, does something that is wrong. The trouble is that he is in the grip of a great force and power. He's aware of it within himself. You wake up in the morning and before you've had time to think positively and actively for yourself, a thought comes to you. Haven't we all known 
This terrible thing about our minds darting here and there, imaginations, where does it come from? You didn't sit down and deliberately set your imagination going? You didn't put your mind along a certain track? No, no, you found it going there. Well, who put it there? That's the power that is within us called sin. The Bible talks about the dominion of sin. It is a terrible power. It is a sort of autocracy that is within us. And I say the result of this is that we are none of us neutral. We are all biased. There is a tendency to wrongdoing in every one of us. We are all by nature people that love the darkness and hate the light instead of loving the light and hating the darkness. Are you aware of this slavery to sin? Do you think the Apostle Paul was a psychopath when he wrote? The evil that I would not that I do and the good that I would I do not. What's the matter with the man? Well, he's not a psychopath, but he's a man who's understood the truth about himself. He says, there's a power in me. With my mind, I would indeed keep and honor the law of God, but I find another law in my members. Something dragging me down. Oh, wretched men that I am. Isn't that true? Are you aware of this other power that is within you, stronger than yourself? Why does a man keep on doing a thing, though he knows perfectly well that after he's done it, he'll be annoyed with himself, he'll be sorry, he'll regret it bitterly. He'll call himself a fool. He does it a thousand times. He goes back and back and back to it. He doesn't want to, he says, and yet he does it. What is it? That is the slavery of sin. Why can't a man stop sinning? Why can't a man keep his New Year resolution? Why can't we live the life we sometimes feel we'd like to live? What is it? What is this thing that paralyzes all our efforts and keeps us down? Well, according to the Bible, it is the slavery of sin. I mustn't stay with that. You remember, we've already glanced at it in a sense. The apostle puts it like this. You have been redeemed, he says, not with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation inherited by tradition from your fathers. That's it. It was in the world before we ever came into it. We didn't come into a perfect world. We came into a sinful world. And there's something in us that corresponds to it. We take to it like ducks to water. The moment we begin to act, we do what everybody else has always been doing. Why is it? Well, because the same nature is in us. That's sin. That is the bondage, the captivity, the serfdom, the slavery of sin. We are under the dominion of sin, under the power, under the reign of sin. That's what Peter's saying, as the Apostle Paul says it at much greater length in his epistle to the Romans. But we are not only slaves to sin, we are slaves of the law of God. We are under the law, and under the dominion of the law. What does this mean? Well, it means this, that whether we like it or not, there is a law of God and we all know about it and it makes things worse for us instead of better. What do you mean, says someone? I mean just this. That there is a law of God written in my heart and in every man's heart by nature. And that when I think of it, it annoys me because it makes me feel uncomfortable. 
I wish I could get rid of it. The psychologists are trying to do so. They're trying to explain it away, but they can't, you see. They would like to explain away the conscience, but they can't. It's there. It's put there by God. It's the law of God condemning and prohibiting and passing its judgment. It's there. And it infuriates us. And we'll sin all the more. It inflames our passions within us, disturbs them, rouses them. You tell a child not to do a thing, it'll do it. It'll want to do it all the more. Tell a man not to do a thing, he'll do it all the more. The child is the father of the man. Is this theory? Is this just uh, theological theory? My dear friend, isn't it sheer fact? Isn't it just accurate? Psychological analysis of every one of us, haven't we all known this? We hate being told not to do a thing. And if, we're, if it keeps on being said, we're not going to do it. We defy it. We all have gone through a stage in which we rather look forward to the time when we could act for ourselves and not do what our fathers and mothers had told us. When we'd get away from home and live our own life. That's the law, you see, and we dislike it. And it drives us more into sin. We are slaves to the law. But not only that, you see, we are under the law in the sense that it condemns us. Oh, we'd like to get rid of this, but we can't get rid of it. We know the law of God is there, and it does condemn us. Every man in this world has got a sense of God. Your anthropologists have discovered that years ago and have proved it. There is not a man, not even the most primitive savage anywhere in the world tonight, but that he's got a sense of a supreme God. And it fills him with fear. Why? Well, the law of God condemns. And it's holding us. And it's holding us in bondage. We look forward to death and we don't like it. No man likes the thought of death. Why? Well, because he's got a sense within him that when he comes to meet that fact of death, there's judgment, there's God. He's been avoiding him all his long life, but at last he's there, and he can't escape. He's got the thought of death. It holds us in bondage, as the author of the epistle to the Hebrews puts it in his second chapter. All their lifetime were subject to bondage through the fear of death. And that is the fear of the law. There's nothing to fear about death, you know, if I thought death was the end. But what if death isn't the end? What if the Bible is true? What if there is a God and a judge eternal? What if? That's the trouble. And I can't prove that death is the end. And so I am under the bondage and the tyranny of the law that condemns me. There it is. It's I can't undo it. I know it. The Ten Commandments and all the rest of it, and I haven't kept it. And I'm condemned. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. And I know that. And I'm in bondage. I wish I could break free. I cannot. I think of God, but then the moment I do, I remember my sins, and I feel I can't go to God. The law condemns me. That's the predicament. We are prisoners. We are slaves. We are held in a position of captivity. And there is one other that I must just mention, and that is that we are thus indirectly also the slaves of the devil. The slaves of the devil under the dominion of sin and of Satan. I've often reminded you the Apostle Paul describes the devil as the god of this world. He talks about the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Why, the Lord Jesus Christ, I remind you once more, has given us this memorable 
picture of men as he is in sin. Men without being redeemed, he's given us this picture of him. The strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. We're all in a great castle. And there's a mighty wall surrounding us. And we're allowed to walk back and forth in the grounds of the castle. And some fools think they're free because they can walk about. You try getting out if you can. You try to scale the walls and get freedom. You try to believe in God and Christ and you'll find you can't. Try to shake off certain things and you'll find that you're an utter failure. The strong man armed, the devil. Epeth is good. In peace. You try to disturb that peace. You try to break loose. You try to get out of your spiritual Dartmoor and you'll soon find what will happen to you. No man has ever got out. Men have been trying to get out from the beginning of civilization. You can read in your Old Testament of the attempts of men of God trying and failing, not one. The devil is too much for us. We are all his slaves and his sons. All right, we're going to pause this message right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break, when we come back, the balance of today's message by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on First Peter chapter 1, 18, 19, 20. Man, a slave to sin. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Deep in the Australian wilderness and also the typhoid infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dying. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. 
No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, it says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Oh. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, a book approaching! Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from the book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Uh, which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the Ascenting uh, Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The, the Circle One. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it, sir. The book will drive. Then I have catapults. Jumping, Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the, uh, this is Sun Sand Soap Prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, uh, no debts, Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they, 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 now, have, cannons! Well, this is impossible! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that human beings are not good by nature. Far from it. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Uh, The rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. By the way, that looks good on a resume. <laughs> After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then $99.95 a month is our quartermaster level. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can do it the traditional way. You can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's uh, um, sermon from Martin Lloyd-Jones on Man, a Slave to Sin. Here we go. Now I say that we must begin by realizing that that is our position. What's the use of shouting a word of encouragement to a man who's in that castle, in that bondage? What's the use of sending literature to a man who hasn't a a single bit of armament to defend himself and is surrounded by this powerful tyrant? What's the use of painting pictures to men who are in slavery? No, no. What they need is to be set free. What they need is to be put out into the open air outside the castle to enjoy liberty and freedom. That is the need. And thank God the gospel is here to tell us that that is precisely not only our need, but the very thing that the gospel has done for us. It is to deliver us. Knowing this, that you have been redeemed, delivered, set free. Now, I want to notice this great term, this word translated redeemed. What does it mean? Well, I say the first thing it means is actual deliverance. But, of course, the great thing about this word is that it also tells us the way in which we have been delivered. It is agreed that a better translation would be this. For as much as you know that you were not ransomed, ransomed, that's the word, It isn't merely deliverance. It is a particular form of deliverance. It is a deliverance accomplished in a very special way and manner. And it is this. It is deliverance by the payment of a ransom price. That's the term used by the apostle. Ransom. Not merely delivered but delivered in this particular way and manner. Well, you see the image that he's using. And uh, this is not confined to the uh, apostle. You find it in the language used by our Lord himself. He said just before his death, the Son of Man, he said, is not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life. A ransom, a ransom. For many. A ransom. You see the image. You see the picture. It's a picture, if you like, of what was done in the days of slavery. A man was a slave belonging to a certain master. Another man wanted a slave. He wanted more men to work. 
in his form or whatever it was. And he rather liked the look of this slave. So what did he do? He couldn't go to the slave. The slave had no power to decide where he went nor who he worked for. A slave has no power to decide anything. He belongs to the master. How can this man get that slave? There's only one way. He's got to pay a price for it. So there were slave markets. And these unfortunate men, these slaves, were put up for auction. There they were, held up to public view, and men began to bid for them. And the highest bidder, the slave was knocked down to him. He paid the price, so the slave became his. That's in this word, ransom. Buying a slave out of the market, delivering him from one master, and he becomes the possession of another master. Or you remember from your history books, how this was often done in ancient times when there would be a war and certain people were taken captive and taken prisoners. You could obtain a man's release from prison and from captivity by paying a price. If I remember rightly, it happened to Richard I, Richard Coeur de Lyon, so-called. He'd been captured and he was a prisoner. He was given his liberty by a price paid. That's ransom money. That's ransom price. Money was paid and the men in captivity were set free. Now that's exactly the language that the apostle is using. And of course he doesn't use his words lightly. This man was inspired of God when he wrote this. All the others are using the same language. Our Lord himself, as I've reminded you, has already used it before them all. Very well then we are told that there's only one way whereby we can be set free from the bondage and the captivity that I've been trying to describe to you. What is it? Well, you notice what he says. He says, not with corruptible things such as silver and gold. There is no money that can buy a man out of this captivity. Money is very useful. Money can buy many things. You can be excused many things by just passing a little silver and gold. You notice his adjective corruptible. All the corruption that's in the world tonight. People getting out of difficulties, getting out of difficult positions, avoiding perhaps a prosecution or a case, or passing a little money, silver and gold, corruptible. And men in his folly thinks that his money, his mighty dollar or mighty pound or whatever it is, can purchase anything he wants. But you know, we're in a realm here where your money is useless. Absolutely useless. You can bring all the silver and the gold in the universe, get it out of Fort Knox or wherever it's kept, gather it from every land, put it all on the counter, and it won't deliver a single soul, not with corruptible things. Yes, silver and gold. The currency isn't recognized in the courts of heaven. It is of no value face to face with the demands of the holy law of God. Not with corruptible things. As silver and gold, you can't buy your way into heaven. You can give mighty donations to good causes. It doesn't affect your position one iota. You can do good with both hands and employ people to do it for you. It will never set you free. How many men have tried to do it that way? But you can't, you know. You can't make atonement for your sins by doing good. And though you may be the greatest philanthropist in the world, it won't blot out a single sin you've committed. Not with corruptible things as silver and gold. 
what him. Oh, this is the extraordinary thing. This is the most marvelous, miraculous thing the world has ever heard. This is the most astonishing thing that's ever happened or ever will. Not with silver and gold. What then? The precious blood of Christ. Heirs of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, that's the gospel. This is the heart of the gospel. This is Christianity. That we know God and are reconciled to him and become his children. And begin to receive his blessings for one thing only. And for one reason only. That a ransom price has been paid for us. And what was it? The precious blood of Christ. The son of God. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now you notice the idea. Take this notion of the lamb. The apostle is using language and imagery that was very familiar to all Jews in particular. Very familiar to all who know their Old Testaments. Do you remember the great occasion when the children of Israel were being set free from the captivity of Egypt? They were slaves in Egypt. They'd gone down all right, but new pharaohs had come and he hated the children of Israel and their success. And he turned them into slaves. He'd set taskmasters over them. And they were absolutely helpless. And they could do nothing about it. They couldn't rebel. They couldn't fight. They'd got nothing to fight with. Here were the powerful taskmasters, Pharaoh and his army, his hosts, his chariots, his horses. They were absolutely helpless and hopeless. And yet God decides to set them free. And God alone can set them free. How does he do it? Well, you remember the story, don't you? He decided that a terrible calamity was going to come upon all who dwelt in Egypt. Except... These children of Israel. The angel of death was going to go abroad and was going to destroy. The only people who were going to be saved were those on the doorposts and lintel of whose doors there was blood painted. Where had the blood come from? Oh, a lamb had been taken and had been slain and its blood was taken and painted on the doorpost. And when the angel of death saw the blood, he passed them by the Passover. That's what he's talking about. It was a thing the children of Israel never forgot. How could they? It was the mark of the blood upon them that saved them. A lamb had been taken and had been slain. Oh, you got it, you get it everywhere. Do you know that once a day, morning and evening, lambs were taken and were slain and offered as offerings in the temple under the Old Testament dispensation? What was it all about? Well, all this was just prefiguring what the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was going to do when he came into the world. And so, you see, when he came, John the Baptist was his forerunner, the last of the great succession of prophets. And there he was standing one day with his followers behind him. And he saw Jesus of Nazareth coming. He said, look. Behold. Look at him. Behold. There is the Lamb of God. That taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Hitherto, he said, men have been providing lambs, and they've been killing them and offering their blood there in the temple and eating them in different ways. At last, God has provided a lamb, the lamb of God. There he is. What does it tell us? 
Well, you notice Peter tells us this. As a lamb, he says, without blemish and without spot. What does that convey to us? Well, it conveys innocence, doesn't it? Innocence. It conveys perfection. You know, the Old Testament's a wonderful book, if you really know how to read it. You go back and read the instructions about these lambs that were to be killed and offered in this way, and you'll find this, that the instruction says that the lamb must be perfect. He mustn't have any defect. If he, was, if he had a defect, he couldn't be used. The lamb must have no physical defect. He must have no blemish. It must be spotless. It must be perfect. Without blemish and without spot. Why? Oh, it's only prefiguring. This is prophecy. It's all pointing to the coming of the Lamb of God. And when he comes, he will be without blemish, without spot. What's it mean? It means simply this. That Jesus of Nazareth was not just a man. Here is the Son of God. Here is God in the flesh. And you see, when he was born, he wasn't born by ordinary generation. Joseph was not his father. The Holy Ghost was his father, as it were. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, said the archangel Gabriel to Mary, his mother. Oh yes, the Holy Ghost came upon her. This holy thing that shall be born of thee. Her cell, as it were, in her womb was purified and cleansed of sin. He was holy. He was without sin. There was no sin. There was no defect. There was no blemish in him. Spotless Lamb of God. He is perfect. He is without sin. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was perfect. Perfect man, perfect God. He never sinned, there was no sin in him. There was no evil, there was nothing about him which could condemn him in any way. He was unlike us, he was not born in sin. He was not shapen in iniquity. He was not fashioned in this vile manner, no, no. A miracle happened when he was conceived. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost. He's not a mere man. He doesn't belong to the series that you and I belong to. He is the new humanity. He is the firstborn amongst many brethren. He is the first of a line. He's the new man, the second man. Adam was the first. Here is the second, the last Adam. And he was without blemish and without spot. The lamb suggests that. Yes, but the lamb suggests another thing, doesn't it? Why was the lamb killed? How did they do it? Well, you remember, this is what they did. They put their hands upon the head of the lamb. What was that? Well, that was symbolically transferring their sins to the lamb. The lamb was killed and his blood offered and presented because that lamb had been made a substitute for the sins of the people. It was only a picture. God was preparing the people for what was to come. He had said, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And this is how it's done. The sin is transferred to the lamb. And instead of the people being killed for their sins, the lamb was killed. Substitution. They offered the lamb instead of themselves. Read the teaching. Their sin is transferred to the lamb, who is then offered as a sacrifice, as a substitute in their place. You hear what Peter says? For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
Is of a lamb without blemish and without spot. How can a man be set free from this bondage? What is the price that must be paid before he can be ransomed? Here's the answer. The precious blood of Christ. That means the death of Jesus Christ on the cross on Calvary's hill. He died on that cross for us, for our sins. He is the Lamb of God. Our sins have been laid upon him. He's been killed for us. The punishment of sin is death. He's been killed. His blood has been shed. His life has been laid down for us. Don't you see there how Isaiah had been given a preview of it all in that 53rd chapter? That's exactly what he's writing about. It had been revealed unto him, and he states it there so perfectly. As a lamb led to the slaughter, in his innocence, in his purity, helplessness apparently, he says nothing, he doesn't defend himself. And what's happening? Well, surely God has smitten him. He was bruised for our transgressions, and so on. Here it is, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The ransom price. Must be a life. And the life is poured out in the blood. We are ransomed because the Son of God came into this world to taste death for us. He came to make his soul an offering for sin. By his stripes. We are healed. That is the way in which the door was opened. Let me ask a question. People are troubled about this. They say, why had this to be? Why can't God look down in love upon us and say, I forgive you? I have much sympathy with the question, but my dear friend, the only answer to you is this, that it is God himself who tells us that it couldn't happen like that. If the love of God was enough and God could just say, very well, I pardon you and forgive you, I ask you, why did the Son of God ever come into this world and suffer as he suffered? Why did God allow him to? I say it would never have happened unless it had to happen. And the whole Bible tells us that it happened because it had to happen. There was no other way. This is the great message of the Bible. It starts right away back in Genesis. An animal was killed that Adam and Eve might be covered with skins after their sin. Abel offered a blood offering and not merely a kind of agricultural offering such as was offered by Cain. Abraham begins to sacrifice and builds temples. God, in addressing Moses and teaching the people how to live, taught him this whole question of sacrifice and offering. It wasn't Moses who conjured it up. Moses received it from God on the mount. God called him up and spoke to him, and Moses came down and told the people. Moses didn't come and say, I've got a new idea. No, no, he says, God has commanded this. God commanded how to build the temple. And when God had given him all the details about the temple and its furniture and all the offerings and sacrifice, he said to him as he was going down the mountain, See that thou do all things according to the pattern shown unto thee in the mount. Look at Isaiah 53. Read all your prophets. 
Read your Psalms. Read Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that amazing description of death by crucifixion. What is it? Well, it's all pointing forward to this. And in the New Testament, it is everywhere. If I had nothing but this, it would be more than enough for me. I repeat it again, our Lord's own words. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. You remember how after Peter had just made his great confession concerning him at Caesarea Philippi, saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord then began to tell the disciples how he was going to be taken by the hands of cruel men and condemned and to be put to death. And Peter sprang out and said, Far be this from thee, Lord. And our Lord rebuked him, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. What were Moses and Elias discussing with him on the Mount of Transfiguration? The answer is the exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. His death. They tried their best. His own followers tried their best to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. He said, I must go. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. They warned him. And he sees it coming, and he prays at last, Father, what shall I ask? Shall I say, save, thee from, save me from this hour? And he says, no, for this hour came I into this world. If the Son of Man be lifted up, which means if he's crucified, he will draw all men unto, me, unto him. It is the only way. And here it is in all these epistles. Listen to the Apostle Paul, in whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. This book is full of blood. The shedding of blood. The blood of the animals. The blood of Christ. Blood. Without shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Why is it to be thus, says someone? Why can't God just say he forgives us in his love? I'll tell you the answer. It is because God is eternally holy and just and righteous. And a holy nature must punish sin. And God has always said that sin must be punished. I say it with reverence, the cosmos would collapse if God's justice could vary even by the tiniest fraction. No, no. God in his eternal justice and righteousness and holiness and purity and law must abide without any modification. Here was the problem, says Paul. How can God remain just and at the same time forgive a man who's a sinner? Had you ever thought of that? If I may put it with reverence, that was the problem confronting God. How to remain God and yet forgive? You say forgiveness is easy. Forgiveness easy. Forgiveness is well nigh impossible. It's as difficult as this. That there was only one way whereby it could become possible. And it was the way that God took. Sin must be punished. And sin was punished. For as much as ye know. That ye are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. God 
hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his stripes we are healed. God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was the only way, and God took it. Which brings me to my last brief word, the glory of it all. Not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, with the precious, precious blood of Christ. He can't measure this, you see. It's beyond silver and gold. It's beyond the highest standards known to men. It is indeed something that he can just say, it's precious. What does he mean? He means this. It is here and here alone we really see the love of God. The trouble with the people who don't believe in the death of Christ is that they know nothing about the love of God. They think they know, but the love they're thinking about is the love that they see on the films. That's not the love of God. The love of God is holy, it's pure, it's clean, it's righteous, it's just, it's heavenly, it's precious. It means this, you see. Not that God as some eternal ogre is gloating over men in sin and delighting in punishing him. No, no. God has mercy and compassion and love even to this extent. It was he who planned this way. It was he who sent his son into the world. It was he who laid the iniquity of us all upon his own precious, only beloved son. It was God who did it, foreordained, he says, before the foundation of the world, by God himself. There's the measure of the love of God. Try and look into that father heart of the eternal, giving his own son up to this. And then think of it in terms of the son. There is nothing more precious than a man's life. You can give you away your goods and your possessions, all your silver and gold, but you still got your life. Oh, how a man will fight for his life. There's nothing more precious than life. Life and honor, these are the supreme things. And what, a man will, what will a man not do in order to preserve his life? If his life is in the balance, he says, I want the best doctor in the world. I don't care what his fee is. I'll take any treatment. I'll spend every farthing. My life. But it was his life that the Son of God laid down for us. Not surprising, Peter talks about the precious blood of Christ. He gave himself, he gave his blood, he gave his life to purchase our ransom. He died in our place. All that should have come upon us came upon him. He bore it all in his own body. That's redemption. That's deliverance. That's the way to be set free. And my dear friends, what I'm here to tell you as I close is this. That it was that alone that could set us free. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal? No respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. 
and thou alone, and thank God he's done it. Let the water and the blood from thy riverside which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Set me free. Ransom me. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who, like me, his praise should sing. It was the only way. And God and Christ have done it. And done it for everyone who, realizing the bondage and the serfdom and the captivity, have cried out for deliverance and have been told that this is the only way and have believed it. My dear friend, let me remind you as I finish what Peter said at the beginning. For as much as you know that you have been redeemed like this, I ask you again in the name of God, do you know that? Do you know that the only way for you to enter into heaven is to believe and to know that the Son of God laid down his life and bled for you and for your sins. Do you know that? If you don't, you're not a Christian. I'll tell you more. You're in your sins. And if you die like that, you'll go to hell. For as much as you know. Do you know it? I can test you. If you know this, if you really know and believe this, you will have thanked God for it. You can't believe a thing like this without thanking God, without thanking the Lord Jesus Christ. Nay more, if you really believe this, there's only one response. If he died to set me free, well, very well, I belong to him now and not to myself. Ye are not your own, says the Apostle Paul. Ye are bought with a price. Love so amazing, so divine, demands, of course, my soul, my life, my all. I was helpless, I could do nothing. I was dying and going to hell. He died for me, he set me free. I belong to him and not to myself. That is, you become a Christian. You renounce sin and all that belongs to it. And you walk freely as a child of God, taking up your cross, denying yourself, taking up your cross. And following him. You know if you see that. You'll be very ready to say something like this. Man of sorrows. Wondrous name. For the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a savior. Bearing shame. And scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. 
Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song will sing. Hallelujah. Praise be unto God. What a Savior. Do you say that? Do you stand and look at him and say, What a Savior. Guilty, helpless, vile were we, spotless. Lamb of God was he. Yes, but he's made a full atonement. Can it be? It is. Hallelujah. Praise God. What a Savior. Have you seen him like that? Do you know that that is the truth? Do you know that this is the only way of delivery, of being set free, being purchased, ransomed at the cost of his precious blood? I announce it to you. Believe on him. Fly to him. Cry out unto him. Say to him, thou must save and thou alone. I believe it. And he will give you assurance of it. And you then give assurance that you do believe it. By denying yourself, taking up your cross and going after him. What a Savior. Amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Till a week from now, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>